days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We're about halfway through 2023. Hard to believe that. Remember New Year's resolutions? Remember New Year's celebrations? All those things. Where are we with the Lord at this stage of 2023? Kevin DeYoung says, in any congregation at any time, visitors, members, those who are online, those who are listening from different places, there are four types of hearers, and we're going to see this next week, Lord willing, as Jesus continues to talk about this in Matthew 13. There are those who are weary. Maybe that's you today. Weary and needing comfort from the gospel, exhausted and sick of your sin, troubled and discouraged at times. If you're weary today, Jesus says, come to me, come to Christ, and you'll find rest in the gospel. Maybe there are some here or listening who are wayward, living a duplicitous life, needing to be humbled and convicted by the law. There may be some who are lazy, who need to be admonished with the law. There may be some who are lost, who don't know Christ, who don't know what it means to be loved by God. Where are you today, halfway through 2023, with the Lord? The mood of this passage is one of warning. Jesus is speaking here with the Pharisees throughout Matthew chapter 12. In particular, three flags of warning. But amid the warnings today that are real is the gospel throughout this passage. Reminding us of who Christ is, what he came to do, and that God will not turn away any who come to Christ in faith. And repentance. The first of the warnings is Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees who are seeking for signs. 
If you look at verse 38, the Pharisees are demanding something here. This is not a polite request, and this is an unbelieving hard heart that asks this. Jesus, give us a sign. The signs that Jesus does signify, that's what a sign means, that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and that he came to deliver people from bondage to sin, Satan, and death. The Pharisees had seen these signs, healing the sick, delivering those who were oppressed by demons. And they had attributed that, we saw a few weeks ago, to the devil himself. Now Jesus gives them a sobering warning. He uses the word generation four times in our passage. What does that mean? He's speaking in particular to those who are hearing him at that time. He says, you are an evil and adulterous generation. That's language from the Old Testament. That this is a spiritual idolatry and adultery. That much like the fathers before them, they have gone after other gods. They are not worshiping the one true God. Jesus says, you're evil. Your hearts are evil. They're wicked. He's saying that to the religious leaders, perhaps the most outwardly moral of any people you could ever imagine. But not only does that apply to them, the evil and adulterous generation that Jesus speaks of here applies to anyone who reads Matthew's gospel from the time that is given unto today. In particular, any who respond to Jesus in the way the Pharisees did. We live in a very wicked generation. Sin and filth and perversion abound, being paraded. Jesus says to us today, he says to those in the context he's speaking, do you want a sign? Oh, I will give you a sign. Remember what Jesus had done in the Old Testament, God himself. Day after day, he'd given a sign from heaven, like a public address announcement. Manna fell for 40 years, six days a week. And yet the heart of unbelief continued. Now Jesus says, I'm going to give you one last sign, greater than all the signs to come. And he speaks here of the sign of Jonah. Remember, he's speaking now before what will happen, his death and resurrection. And he's saying Jonah has something to do with that. That's an interesting thing, isn't it, kids? Do you remember Jonah, children? The prophet who lived 750 years before the coming of Christ, who was called by God to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, present-day Iraq, to bring a message of repentance, to remind them that judgment will come. And children, what did Jonah do? He hopped on a train bound for nowhere, as someone once sang. He went the opposite direction, not to Nineveh, but to Tarshish. He gets on the boat. This is true. Jonah really was a prophet. This really happened. And the pagan sailors are noticing that a storm has come, and Jonah's the one who says it's because of me. They toss him into the, the water. And what happened, kids? God appointed a great fish to come to swallow Jonah. And it's in Jonah chapter 2, in the belly of that fish, where he was for three days and three nights, 
that God brings the prophet to repentance. The fish spits Jonah up. He heads to Nineveh. The sign of Jonah, Jesus says, which is historically true, is pointing to Christ's own death and resurrection. Jonah, three days in the fish. Jesus will be three days in the tomb, in the heart of the earth after he dies on the cross. Jonah was swallowed by the sea monster, the fish. Jesus will be swallowed up by the earth in a sense. That's the picture here. But you might read this and think, well, three days and three nights. Kids, do the math. When did Jesus die on the cross? Friday. Friday night, Saturday night. When did he rise from the dead, children? Sunday morning, the Sabbath day, the new Lord's day, the day of his resurrection, the day that we are enjoying today. So how many nights is that? Two, right? Have you wondered what this means? Is Jesus miscounting? He's not. The Jewish way, Eric Alexander says, of reckoning time regards one part of a day, a whole day and a whole night. So three days and three nights then would be encompassed by Friday night through Sunday morning. Jesus here is greater than Jonah. Jesus is the perfect prophet, the son of God in the flesh, who not only, Jonah was in the fish, not only went into the earth, but he, but he died. He was dead as he was crucified. And not only did Jonah have a, spit fit, a, a fish spit him out, easy for me to say, but Jesus rose from the dead. Jonah wasn't dead. Christ was. He is the greater one. Jonah's released by the power of God through that fish spitting him out. But in the resurrection of Christ, we see that Jesus does something that only God could do. He, as he lay in the grave, Jesus is under the curse of the law, the curse of the covenant of works. In the day that you eat of this tree, dying you will die, Genesis 2. Christ's resurrection, then, is a taking off of an infinite weight, the sin of mankind that lay on him. He's raised, Romans 6, by the glorious power of God. Christianity hinges on the greatest of signs. Christ himself is the sign. Christ's death is the sign. And his resurrection how can you be sure the word of God is true? The resurrection of Jesus. How do you know that Jesus really is God in the flesh? The resurrection of Jesus. How do you know for certain that Jesus has the power of eternal life and that you will live forever in him? The resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection assures you, Christian, today that salvation is complete. He was raised, Romans 4, for our justification. He died on the cross bearing our sins. Was God satisfied with that? He was. He was raised by God to assure you today, Christian, that he has accomplished your salvation. 
your redemption is paid in full. Your sins are forgiven. By faith, you have eternal life. His atonement is complete. His obedience was perfect. Jesus' resurrection was his vindication, meaning it demonstrated that he actually was righteous, legally, morally, spiritually, inherently, perfectly. He didn't die to pay for his own sins. He had none. He obeyed and died in your place for your sins. By his resurrection, his righteousness is confirmed. 1 Timothy 3.16 He is vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is operating in the resurrection of Christ. The Father is pleased with him. The resurrection proves that he's vindicated by the Father. It proves that he has victory over death and sin and hell. It proves the gospel is trustworthy and true. But as long as Christ remains outside of us, as long as that's just maybe a footnote in history, that has nothing to do with us. But as you trust in Christ by the Spirit, through faith, everything that is Christ is yours. There is more righteousness in Christ than sin in you. The love of God for you is never-ending. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Emmaus Road, be assured today, Christ is risen. By faith in him you are forgiven, and you can rest. By nature, we don't want to rest. By nature, we'll see that in this passage. We want to continue to, to try to earn our salvation. God is pleased with you in Christ. He teaches us by his spirit to rest. That Christ holds on to you. That my restlessness is not greater than his grace. That his spirit is at work, reminding me the gospel is enough. You're loved by God. You rest in the finished work of Christ, his benefits alone. You trust him. The gospel is here in the midst of these warnings. Do you want a sign, Jesus says? The sign of Jonah. But he also says, do you notice another very interesting Old Testament reference? He speaks of the sign of the queen of the south. Do you see that, kids? Look at verse 42. Who is the queen of the south? Isn't that a strange reference? The queen of the south... Reminds us of the expression, have you heard this? Maybe some of you in different generations have heard, who does she think she is? The queen of Sheba? Anybody heard that? Maybe that, that's really dated. I, I grew up with that. I think that was from my grandparents or maybe even before them. This is really old. Well, this really was the queen of Sheba. She came from present-day Yemen in the days of Solomon, about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. She traveled for months on perhaps camels or other animals, to see the wisdom of Solomon, the glory of the temple, and to meet and worship Solomon's God. God brought her to worship. It took her breath away when she met Solomon and saw what really pointed to God's glory. Why would Jesus bring her up? 
Because the religious leaders in his day, the evil generation, failed to see that something greater than Solomon was here. Christ is wisdom. He is righteousness. He is redemption. Anything Solomon had in terms of wisdom was given to him by the Lord himself. The queen of Sheba traveled for months to see Solomon. Here are the scribes and Pharisees with God in their midst, Jesus, and they hardened their hearts. The queen of Sheba brought gifts to Solomon. The scribes and Pharisees are plotting against Jesus' life. The contrast is stark. Here is Jesus, the greatest king. The one whose kingdom expands the globe, whose beauty is beyond our ability to explain. In whom are hidden treasures beyond measure. Here's Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. This is the sign for them and for us, loved ones. The sign of God's mercy and power, his love and grace. The question is, how do people respond to Christ when he's preached? Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will take part in the judgment against the wicked generation of the Pharisees and all who align with them. The queen of the south of Sheba will take part in the judgment against them. What happened when Jonah preached children? He's there for 40 days. God will destroy your city unless you repent. And by the grace of God, they repented from the king down to the peasant. There was a gospel revival and reformation through the preaching of Jonah. God's spirit did that. That generation was spared the judgment. That was around 750 BC. Do you know what happened to Nineveh later on? In the days of Nahum, have you read Nahum, the prophet? Around 612 B.C., they didn't repent. The next generation hardened their hearts. Nineveh was judged and destroyed. But in that generation of Noah, they did. So the men of Nineveh will say, we just had this prophet who was spit out of a fish walking around here for 40 days saying repent, and they believed. The queen of the south believed based on what Solomon told her and went back and told others, we think, perhaps, of the Lord. They had that very limited revelation of God and they trusted him for it. How much more revelation did the Pharisees have as Christ was there before them? And how much more do we have even than them? We have the fullness of the word of God, loved ones. We have the Spirit of God poured out upon us. When the Word of God is opened up, that is Christ speaking to us. Jesus says, Nineveh and the Queen of the South are not only being raised up as a sign of judgment, but when you read the rest of Matthew, what else do they point to? The conversion, wide scale, of the nations. Both the people of Nineveh and the Queen of the South are not from among Israel. They're from the nations of the earth that Christ came to purchase with his blood. 
The Great Commission, the end of Matthew, go into all the nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to observe all that Jesus has commanded. They are a pointer, loved ones, a pointer to God's marvelous grace for every tribe, tongue, and nation, his elect among them. Amidst the judgment, we see a gospel promise. Secondly, not only is there a warning of religion without true repentance, there's a warning of religion without true regeneration. Look at verse 43. Kent Hughes shares a story, it's a joke. Maybe this will help us to understand this, maybe it won't. You can tell me after. These are some very confusing verses. Ken Hughes says this. There was a Swede who had a friend, so a Swedish guy, who had a friend who had skunks move in under his porch. Nothing would get them out. So the Swedish guy said to his friend, here's how you get them out. You get a little lutefisk, you put it under the porch. You know what lutefisk is? You get that under the porch, the skunks will be gone. So he does what he's told. A few days later, his friend asked him, so how did it go? Not well, he said. Why? Well, I put the lutefisk under the porch. All the skunks moved out. But now a whole colony of Norwegians has moved in. And I can't get them out for anything. Don't worry, the Norwegians tell it on the Swedes as well. It goes back and forth. And if you're not sure, ask one of the Marsons. They can tell you well about lutefisk. What's going on here? Well, this is a strange passage speaking of a man who once had a demon. That's what Jesus came to cast out of people. The demon left him, went into different places, comes back and finds his own house, his own heart, empty. And he not only comes into that heart, but seven others come along with him. Jesus says again, this evil generation... Your last state will be worse than your first. That's his focus, the evil generation. Phil Riken says this lifts the veil on the spiritual realities of the unseen world. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Christian, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in what day? Ephesians 6. The evil day. And having done all to stand firm. This reminds us of the day we're living in. It reminds us demons are real even though we don't see them. That they influence people's mental and physical condition. They come in, they come out. It reminds us also, as we read the rest of the Bible, nowhere are you and I commanded to cast out demons. But it also is an important reminder that Christians cannot be inhabited by a demon. Keep that in mind here in this very intense text. So what's the point? There's a broader application, Riken says. This is a picture of self-help religion. If there's ever a passage that has a contemporary ring to it, this is it. Here we are halfway through 2023. It's fine to make a New Year's resolution. Those things can be helpful at times. But if we're trusting in our own strength to to, to change ourselves, if we're trusting in self-help, 
outward behavior, manners and habits, personal effort, turning over a new leaf, trying to be a better person, trying to get rid of that and do this, putting our life in order. It's empty. Meaning, not that the life of this person in this text or the life of the one who does self-help is empty or dull. It may be full of all sorts of things in the world's way of thinking. But it is empty of the presence of the living God for whom that life and our heart was formed and created. So it's an open invitation for the powers of darkness to come back in, Jesus says. Sure, you can get rid of a habit, but one idol gets knocked down as that, in that game whack-a-mole, another one pops up. Externalism doesn't change. Dead formalism doesn't change anyone. It's a picture, Alexander says, of religion without regeneration, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit. Personal and moral change will not free anyone from the bondage of Satan. Moral change without Christ leads to eternal hell. We can never be good enough to earn God's favor. Only Christ is good enough. He is sufficient. He finished it. He completed it, our redemption. If we're outside of Christ, our lives are the devil's playground. You've heard that quote before that idleness is the devil's playground. It is dangerous to be satisfied with any religious change that is not true conversion that comes about by the regenerating work of God's spirit. Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration can lead to demonic domination. Our world says, just try harder, do better. It will never work. It will not lead to lasting spiritual change. What do we need? Ephesians 3, Paul says, I pray that the Father would grant you power by his Spirit that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Emmaus wrote halfway through 2023, that's a prayer for us as a family of God, for you and your spouse, for you and your kids, for you and your grandkids, for each other. God, grant us your power, your Spirit, that Christ would dwell in us, that the Spirit would come and sanctify us. I'm struggling, you might say, with being idle. I'm struggling with being faint-hearted. I'm struggling with laziness. I'm struggling with discouragement. Or I'm pride and self-righteous, and I, I really think I've got it all together. In either case, we need Christ. We need the law. We need the gospel. We need the Spirit of God. God, kill my lust and give me, by the Spirit, purity. My worry, oh Lord, I'm struggling. Give me a trust in Jesus. Father, greed has gripped my heart right now. Give me a contentment in Christ. I'm angry right now. My fuse is short. I'm angry with the dog. I'm kicking the dog. I'm angry with the kids. I'm angry with life. I'm angry with my, my job and my boss. Oh God, give me the grace of the spirit-given patience that you can give. I'm dealing with addictions right now, Father. They might be all sorts. They might be 
addictions of time or substance or food or drink. It might be all manner of things. Give me the grace of repentance, your kindness to repent, a zeal for the glory of God. Give me Christ. This warning is real. Third, you don't need to do this alone. Jesus speaks of his spiritual family. Satan wants to isolate us. He wants you to think you're the only one here dealing with the problem or the struggle you're dealing with. He wants you to think no one cares, that God has cast you out. And God says, I am near to you, and I brought you into a spiritual family. Where are you with the Lord Jesus in 2023? You're not alone. You're here together. Look around. Brothers and sisters in Christ who love you, who are praying for you, who want to help you to become more like Christ, who are on this journey, this pilgrimage together with you. Here's the scene. Jesus giving warnings. The generation is evil. His mother and brothers show up. Who's his mother, children? Mary. The Gospels tell us he has brothers. Half-brothers. James and Jude, Joseph and Simon. Do you know that? And some sisters. So there were children born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Most likely at this point, Joseph has died. We don't know where he is. But here his family shows up. At this point in the Gospels, his brothers didn't believe in him. Mark 3 says his family thought he was mad. Even Mary misunderstood his mission at times. Mary was not sinless. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. It's only after the resurrection and ascension that his brothers believe. And they join with the disciples. Do you remember that in Acts 1? In the upper room waiting for the Spirit. James, one of Jesus' earthly brothers, becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. At this point, his family's asking him to come, to come and join them. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? What an interesting question. It means, who are those who belong to my spiritual family? Who are those who are children of the Heavenly Father? Jesus then points to the disciples. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. This is a dramatic scene. So yes, there are the Pharisees there, the evil generation, but there are believers there that Jesus is speaking to at this time. Jesus loved his family. He told John to take care of his mother as he died on the cross. But Jesus' point here is that mere family connection or outward physical relationships doesn't equal belong to Jesus' spiritual family. To those who did receive him, John 1, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children, you have a great blessing to grow up in Christian homes as children who are being raised with the scriptures being taught to you and coming to worship the Lord and having a family and a, a church family who prays for you. That's a great blessing. But spiritual ties supersede physical ties. 
Satan wants to distort the best of God's gifts, doesn't he? The old proverb says, the worst is the corruption of the best. One of God's best gifts to us is family. That's why Satan is seeking to destroy it. It has been since the fall. Think of Cain and Abel. The culture's view of the family, Kevin DeYoung says, is one of two things. Either the family keeps you from everything you really want, or the family gives you everything you really need. See how we can go from one side to the other? DeYoung says, don't use Christianity to trade one idol for another. Family's a blessing, but it is not everything, earthly family. The idolatry of the family, DeYoung says, might be the most acceptable sin in churches today. Many people live for the approval of their family. They let their family dictate their whole schedule. They make their children the center of everything. There's a danger there, isn't it? The marriage should not be centered around the kids, even as much as we thank God for the kids. Our schedule shouldn't be dictated all by the kids. We do our children no favors if we make them think they are more important to us than God. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your spouse isn't Christ. Your kids aren't Christ. Your parents aren't Christ. They will let you down. Only Christ can satisfy. Maybe you're older kids, and maybe you have experience with older kids. We need to ask, God, help me not to be contentious with my family. Help me not to just hold things against them to say, you've wronged me, you've done this and this, you're misguided, you've screwed up there. God, help me to forgive my family as I've been forgiven in Christ. Give me the spirit to become more loving and humble and gentle with my family. The biblical view of the family, DeYoung says, it is good, necessary, foundational, not ultimate. God, not our family, gives us true meaning and purpose and love. What's the burning passion that we as as parents have for our kids and our grandkids? That they might belong to Jesus. That my son might be my brother. That my daughter might be my sister. Jesus has come to create a spiritual family, which has been God's plan from the beginning. The family of God beginning in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. The church continuing through all generations. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Behold, Emmaus Road, what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. God is your Father. Christ is your elder brother. The Spirit is making you more like your elder brother. Characteristic, so you are now reflecting your Savior more and more. Jesus says, Who are my Family, who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. What's God's will for you, Emmaus Road, and me? To be thankful in Christ, to be content, to grow in purity, to trust Jesus. Oh God, change me to be more like Christ and help me with my spiritual family around me. This family that are fellow citizens with me, with the saints, that are members of the household of God, help me to set my hope and enjoy, help them set their hope by the Spirit 
on Christ. Some come from a bad family, maybe from a broken home, yelling and selfishness and contention. Some come perhaps from a family without a father, an absentee father, or without a Christian mother or father, or some come who have been scattered and not known a church family, or far from their physical family because of work. This is your spiritual family right here, Emmaus wrote. This is a place that we are nourished in the gospel, in God's love for us, edified by the word, growing as disciples, worshiping the Lord together. So here's an encouragement. Highlight the good you see in each other. Speak about how you've been blessed by one another, where the aroma of Christ among his people has blessed you. Pray for one another. Thank God for each other in prayer. Communicate your love to each other and God's love to this brother, this sister. Identify the gifts of the Spirit in their lives. Remind each other of our identity in Christ and the faithfulness of Almighty God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Beloved, we have sung today of the resurrection of